Hey, good morning, and welcome today. I am sure glad to be with you this morning in this place. And while you're getting settled there, go ahead, pull out your Bible. We're back in the book of Romans today. Romans chapter 8. Okay, yes, thank you. Romans chapter 8 is where we go. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and ushers are coming down the aisles. We'd love for you to take that Bible home. If you have five of those Bibles in your car right now, could you bring those back and uh, make a donation to the church? And there's something in the Bible about not stealing. I don't remember where it is, somewhere. We titled our series in the book of Romans, The Beautiful Disruption. And we chose that title for a reason. We chose the title Beautiful Disruption because that is what happens in a person's life when the gospel goes to work in them. It's like a nuclear weapon goes off of beauty and disruption. It happened in the life of the Apostle Paul. Do you remember this? We talked about this in week one of Romans. Way back, almost a year ago, Paul was on his way to murder Christians in a town called Damascus, and God disrupted him, and it was really beautiful. So sometimes, if you think a disruption is always negative, it's a little counterintuitive, but when God disrupts your life, let me tell you something, folks, it's always beautiful. It's a good thing to be disrupted by God. It happened in my life. I was disrupted by the gospel. I was a 17-year-old young man. I was on my way to college to be an orthodontist. Not quite as nefarious as murdering Christians, but ill-advised nonetheless, right? I had my whole life mapped out. I had a vision of the good life in front of me, and for some reason that included being an orthodontist. I don't know why, but... My orthodontist, he changed my life. It was, junior high was a tough time for me, okay? Imagine a kid who was part gumbo, but like with the head of a woodchuck. That was me, all right? Junior high is already tough enough. But anyway, so I thought, the good life, you know? I want to be, I kind of want to be comfortable, healthy, maybe a little bit wealthy. I'll be an orthodontist, you know? I'll drive a forerunner. I got that part. But anyway, I had this whole vision, and God said, you know what? I'm going to disrupt that. And I'm so glad he did. He disrupted me. How about you? Has God disrupted your life at times? You're on your way. Maybe you're even thinking, what I'm pursuing, what I'm going after, this is going to make me so happy. And suddenly you realize, God's disrupting me. Things aren't working out the way I thought they were going to work out. But it's actually a beautiful thing. God is sovereign. God is good. He knows what's best for us. You know, the Apostle Paul believed that should be the normal experience when the gospel drops in someone's life. He wrote this letter, Romans 8. He wrote this book, Romans, the book of Romans. What an incredible book we had to study. It's a wonderful thing. You know, Paul didn't know the Romans. He'd never been to Rome. But he writes this letter, he sends it off to Rome, and he believed the most important thing I could share with these Christians I've never met is the heart of the gospel. Because Paul believed that it's not just about them understanding the gospel. What needs to happen is the gospel needs to go off in their lives and begin to transform the way they live, everything about their lives. And that's what Romans 8 
is about. We've come to the place now, it took us 10 months to study seven chapters of Romans, all right? And it's going to take us six weeks to study Romans chapter 8. Pray for me. It will be a miracle if I get through verse 1, all right, this morning. Romans 8, arguably the greatest chapter in the greatest letter ever written, Romans 8. And Romans 8 is the most comprehensive vision of the ideal Christian life in Scripture. If Romans 7 describes the life that many Christians actually live, Romans 8 describes the life God actually intends for his people. Do you remember Romans 7? It's kind of a long time ago now, I realize. Paul describes this epic struggle. Remember it? Paul's bemoaning. He's like, I don't understand what I do. The things that I most want to do, I never do those things. And the things that I hate, the things I don't want to do, those end up being the things that I often do. And Paul describes this epic struggle. And I I said to you back then, I said, by the time you finish reading Romans 7, you are so ready to read Romans 8. (laughs) Right? Amen? And now we get to read it. And now we get to preach it. And Romans 8 is like the Christian version of the good life. It's like the most comprehensive picture of the kind of life that God intends for you when the power of the gospel goes to work in and through your life. And so here's the question I want you to ask. Before we even crack this letter, before we even open this chapter, here's the question I want to ask you. When you think about your life right now, would you say, I'm living the good life? Like, I am, I am living in the fullness of all that God has for me. Now, be honest. Would you say that? Would you say, I am, I am enjoying, I am experiencing, I am on the path with Christ. I am living the good life, as Jesus describes it. And if not, what's missing? Do you find actually defining your life that sometimes you think, I'm not doing good enough, I'm not, I need to be more, I need to do more, I need to work harder, I need to try harder? Is that the narrative in your head? Or do you find yourself thinking, no, I am experiencing all that God has for me? That's a question we're going to ask over the next six weeks together. And I think it's a really important question. Because the purpose of Romans 8 is to set you free. By the end of the next six weeks, my prayer and my hope in our church is that we would be free, that we would be living in the fullness of all that God has for us. That's the power of Romans 8. We look at it with me now this morning, Romans 8. I'm just going to read a couple verses to get us started today. Verses 1 through 4. Here's what Paul says. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Isn't that the most densely packed four verses? I mean, 
There's no, just, you need to pray. There's no way I'm gonna get to all four verses today. All right, I'm gonna try. That is an incredible passage. But do you know what it begins? Go back, look at verse one. It begins with this phrase. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, here's what I want you to think about. That is Paul's answer to Romans 7. The struggle. I'm struggling. I'm tr- I keep failing. All the things that I want to do, I never do them. And the things that I don't want to do, those are the things I keep doing. And Paul says, do you know what the first answer to that is? Do you know what the solution is? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But that's kind of odd if you think about it. I don't know about you, but I would have expected Paul, after he finished Romans 7, describing the struggle, the Christian who's struggling, what I would expect Paul to do next is say, okay, now I'm going to tell you what to do. Here's what you need to do. I'm going to give you a really practical self-help sermon. I'm going to give you five steps to defeating your flesh, right? That's what we want. But Paul knew something. Think about this, friends. Paul knew that's never going to work. It won't work. Self-help, practical tips, five steps to a better you, that stuff will never work because the problem is not that you're not trying hard enough. Paul says, if you start there, it's never going to create the change you really want. Paul says, we need to start with what God has done. We need to start with the full reality of our new identity in Jesus Christ. No condemnation. We just look at those words, no condemnation. That is an astounding phrase. There is therefore now no condemnation. Those two words describe the status of a person who is in Christ. It's your new position as a Christian. To not be condemned is, of course, these are legal terms. It means to be free from any penalty or debt. No one has any charges against you. A person who's in Christ Jesus is not under condemnation from God. This is astounding, friends. This means God has nothing against you. God has no charge to bring against you. When God looks at you and you're in Christ, he sees no guilt. He has nothing to pardon. He has nothing to punish. Now, there's a lot I need to say here, but, but before I move on, I need to address a hurdle. Because condemnation talk for us is a little tough, all right? We modern people, when we hear condemnation, we, that kind of rattles us a little bit. It ruffles our feathers because we think, wait a minute, who has the right to condemn me, right? Condemnation. There's no, why is that good news? Why would I be under condemnation in the first place? Does God have the right to condemn me? That's how moderns typically think. And it creeps into the church too. We think condemnation. I didn't even realize there was a threat of condemnation. And there's two reasons why we struggle with this. The first is we often have too high a view of human beings, right? And the second is we often have too low a view of God. 
Too high a view of humans, too low a view of God. Put that together, condemnation's not really a topic, right? We have too high a view of human beings because we're swimming in the waters of secular humanism, which has basically told us that the biggest problem we have as human beings is our untapped potential. We just have to tap into our fullest potential and we'll be fine. But really the problem is we have such a low view of God. Most people think, what right does God have to condemn me? You know? So, think about this though. If God is the creator of everything, creator of heaven and earth, that means your very existence depends on his goodness and creation. And if God is absolutely holy, which he is, that means that human beings in our sin and our brokenness, we cannot even begin to compare to his standard of righteousness. Condemnation, friends, is exactly what we deserve. And so for Paul to say, I know you're struggling, I know the battle is tough, and the very first thing you need to hear is that there's no condemnation. And I'll get to the in Christ Jesus part in just a minute. You gotta hear that. You have to start there. There's no hope for transformation if you don't begin there. So look at verse one. Let me show you something real quick. This is bigger than just, I'm not condemned. This language is so strong. In the Greek, it comes through. Paul is basically saying that for the Christian, there is there's no condemnation at all. It doesn't even exist. It's completely off the table now. It's not just that you've moved out from condemnation for a little while, but it could return later. Paul's saying, from this point on and forevermore, condemnation is not even in the realm of possibility for you if you're in Christ. And the reason I want to drive that home a little bit is because I've talked to a lot of people who have joined our church, visited our church. You've come from other faith traditions, maybe even other sects of Christianity. And in some different versions of Christianity, you've been taught that when you come to Christ and you repent of your sins and you start now to live a good life, you're no longer condemned. But if you were to begin to fall into sin again, you would fall right back under condemnation until you repent or do all the things you need to do to get back into the no condemnation category. And so there are actually sects out there and other, and other teachers who will teach that the Christian life is kind of this life where you could be constantly coming in and out from a status of no condemnation and the rationale behind that is that the fear of not being under con condemnation would motivate you to live a holy life, right? Any of you been raised in traditions like that? Can I tell you something? Fear is a horrible motivator towards holiness. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. You know what motivates people to follow Jesus? God's grace. The power of grace. Fear is powerless. But grace is so powerful. It goes off in your life like a nuclear bomb of beauty and disruption. And it, it begins to change everything about the way you see yourself. And I want to pray that for you this morning. 
I want to put up a principle this morning, and I want you to think about this. I've taught on this before, but this is so important. It's absolutely vital that you believe this in your life. This is all over the New Testament, but it's right in this passage. And I want you to think about that. You might even write this down. The principle is this. The only sin that you can overcome in your life is a forgiven sin. I want you to think about that. The only sin that you can overcome in your life is a forgiven sin. Now just play with that for a minute. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tease on that. Let me say it a different way. The only sin that you can defeat and replace with righteousness is a sin that's already been forgiven through the loving sacrifice of Christ. And here's why I'm driving that home. Here's why I'm pushing on this. Because there are human ways to break bad habits. And some of you are really self-disciplined people. I can see it in your eyes right now. Like, you're so self-disciplined. You're like, if I've got a bad habit, by golly, I'm gonna break it. You know what happens? You start working on a a bad habit in your own strength, your own like natural power, you know what that will result in? It won't result in God's righteousness. It will result in self-righteousness. And that's not the same thing. That is not the same thing. And not only that, you will never be able to break the power of the flesh that's at work in your life. The only way for the power of that sin that is over you, the only way for it to be broken where you could actually begin by God's grace to come out from under it is if it's a sin that has already been dealt with by Jesus Christ on the cross. If you try to fight sin without this foundation of joyful confidence, stand there with me right now. Just think, imagine being in a place where you realize I have so much joy because I'm completely confident that in Christ there's no, there's no condemnation for my past, my present, and nothing in my future can result in condemnation. That is the power that could take off in your life and allow you to begin to live a different way and be free. The fancy big theological way to say it is justification must come before sanctification. Or, I gotta be right with God before I can do right for God. And it has to go in that order. Now, some of you, some of you are going, man, why do you have to like bring out the big Bible words and get into all this nitpicking about the order of stuff? And you're thinking, I'm a relational person. Can we get back to Batman and Wonder Woman up there? What, can we worship like, don't, don't bother me with all this theology and the order of stuff. Like I'm relational and all that stuff. Okay, well, <clears throat> all right. How about this? Here's an illustration. Why I think this is the key to your, the joy in your Christian life. Imagine it's your senior year of college and you are about to take the hardest class that's being offered on campus and you have to pass this class in order to graduate. It's like a requirement. You have to pass this class. For me, this was organic chemistry. I sat in organic chemistry and uh, this really happened at Willamette and the teacher walked up, the professor walked up and here's the first thing out of his mouth. There's like 80 of us. And he says, all right, everybody, Turn to the person on your left and the person on your right 
and say goodbye. Because half of you will fail this class. I was like, thank you. There's a little pick-me-up. Thank you. Okay? It's a little encouragement for my day. But imagine there you are. You're in the class. You know there's absolutely no way that I've got the mental acumen to pass this class. But I have to pass it in order to graduate. And what if the professor got up and said, okay, there's two ways to do this, and you get to choose. The first way is, I'm going to guarantee you an A right out of the gate. No matter what you do, you're going to get an A. All you have to do is show up every day, do your best, and live out your identity as an A student. It's never going to happen. I'm sorry. But just it's an illustration, all right? Don't hold me to the details. Or he says, you could choose that option. Or we'll go with the traditional option, which is I'm going to give you the hardest test you've ever gotten in your life. And at the end of the thing, I'm going to grade you on your performance and we'll see how that goes. Can I ask you a question? In that moment, would you say, why are we nitpicking about details? And can we get practical here? No, you would say, my life and death falls on which option I choose right now. River West, can I tell you something? I just described to you the heart of the gospel. If you try to live a life pursuing holiness and you don't start on the foundation that God has already declared you righteous in Christ Jesus, you will never get anywhere. It will not work. It won't work. Fear is a terrible motivator, but grace is powerful. You know what God sees when he looks at you? He sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what he sees. You know what he sees when he looks at you? He loves you as much as he loves his one and only son. And do you know why? Look at the last phrase of verse one. Because you're in Christ. You're in Christ. There's no condemnation. For everyone, no. That verse does not... Paul's not a universalist. There is one requirement. And the requirement is this. It's for people who are in Christ Jesus. And so can I ask you a question this morning? Are you in Christ? Is your life hidden in Christ? Have you turned over control and said, I've got to stop trying on my own. I've been fighting. I've been failing. I've been struggling. I'm not making any progress. My life is a disaster area because I'm trying to do it on my own. And God's trying to disrupt you with beauty and power and grace. Are you in Christ, Jesus? Before I finish preaching, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray and put your faith completely in Jesus. At the end of this sermon, you'll have an opportunity. If you're not in Christ, I'm going to explain it now in just a minute. But if you're not there, there's condemnation. It's like I'd love to say that softer, but the reality is there's two kinds of people in the world. There are those who are in Christ, and for those there's no condemnation. And then there are those who are not in Christ. And for those people, there's condemnation. And the, invita- the, the arms of the Father are wide open right now. Come to Jesus. Just come to Christ. 
If you're in Christ, all the things that happen to Christ benefit you. They actually happened to you. Let me tell you what I'm getting at. Oh my goodness, we're gonna read verse two. This is a miracle. Okay, verses two, I'm gonna read two and three. So get put on a seatbelt. Okay, if you're in Christ, look at this. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. Do you see that? You've been set free from the law. Who's been set free from the law? People who are in Christ. What kind of law? The law of sin and death. That's a recap of chapter seven. Remember, the law the law was amazing. It was a gift of God, but all the law had the power to do was to draw out how sinful we are. So God said, I'm gonna do it another way. I'm gonna send Christ. And those who are in Christ, there's no condemnation because they've been set free from that law. Look at verse three. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Look at this phrase. He condemned sin in the flesh. You just hover over that phrase. Paul's saying, the law was amazing, but the law... The law did not have the power to save. It only had the power to set the standard and we fall short of the standard. So what the law was powerless to do, God did. And what did God do? He sent his one and only son. That's the incarnation. He sent Christ who came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Paul's being very precise there. He's saying Jesus never sinned, but he did come as a human being with real physical flesh the same kind of flesh that for you and I, without the power of the Holy Spirit, is sinful. And why, did, why would God do that? So that Jesus could pay for sin. You see that, verse three? And then Paul uses this phrase, he condemned sin in the flesh. Here's my question. Just look at that sentence. Whose sin got condemned? This is not a, this is whose sin got condemned? Our, our sin Whose flesh got condemned? Jesus' flesh. Okay, do you see that? God condemned sin. Whose sin? My sin. Where did the condemnation go? It went to the flesh of Christ. And then Paul says, this is why it's so important that you are in Christ. Because you benefit from that. All of your condemnation gets poured into Jesus Christ. And that's why you're no longer condemned. That's why you're not condemned. Charles Spurgeon said something about that verse that was really scandalous. He actually said, it would be unjust for God to punish the believer for her sin because the punishment's already been paid by Christ. So if God punished the believer, you, in Christ Jesus, that would be a double punishment because he already poured out all the condemnation on Jesus Christ who died on a cross in your place. And now you go free. And so please don't think this is just doctrine, high-minded theology, like... This is the heart of Christianity, and friends, I want it for you. It's so powerful.
Now, if that was all Paul said in Romans 8, it would be amazing, but there's more. Next week, we're gonna, we're gonna go a little bit further here, but what I wanna do is I just wanna show you real quick a little bit about verse four. This is a miracle. I'm gonna read verse four. What time is it? It's 10.02. I've got an hour. Let's go. No, I don't. I have, five, I have 10 minutes. Look at this. Okay, what is the purpose of all this? Do you see that little phrase right at the beginning of verse four? In order that. It's the Greek word hina. It's a purpose phrase. It's a logic word. It basically means everything I just said, let me tell you what the purpose was. So you'd be thinking back on what we just read and you'd go, well, why did God send Jesus? What was the purpose of the incarnation? Why did Jesus have to suffer so terribly? What was the purpose of all that God was doing? Because that cost God a lot. God was pouring out his most precious resources. So whatever the purpose was, it must be extremely important to God because he just devoted his most precious resources to it. And what was the purpose? The purpose was this, that you could actually live a life that pleases God. You could actually be transformed. Do you see it there? Verse four, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That's an amazing sentence. God sent Christ. God condemned sin in the flesh of Christ. God did all these things the law could not do. Why did he do that? So that the actual requirements of the law could be fulfilled in you. There's a lot of debate about that phrase, the righteous requirement of the law. Do you see it there? there some some uh, scholars teach that that doesn't have anything to do with your actual change, your actual obedience. And there's kind of a, a long tradition of that. John Calvin taught this. Many other scholars have taught. That all this is saying is that the, the, the believer gets the the, the righteousness of Jesus, Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law and that whole, it's like a forensic thing. All that perfect righteousness is transferred to the believer and it doesn't matter what you do. It's all there. And they have good reasons for teaching that. One of the reasons is this verse is very much about what God has done and, and I agree. But I do think that one of the things Paul's saying here is this is actually gonna empower you to begin to be like Jesus in your life. The righteous requirement of the law gets fulfilled not for you. No, notice the word, it's actually in you. Something begins to change. And the reason I know that's true because the very next thing that Paul says, do you see it in your Bible? He says, this is about those people who are walking, walking in Christ, walking in the Spirit. That's that's, it's a beautiful metaphor. We're gonna talk about it a lot next week. The Christian walk, all right? Your walk. Did you know that you're on a journey? That's the way the Bible describes your Christian life. It's like a walk. The, the Hebrew people, this was a Hebraism. It was basically, your walk was like a figure. It was the way you conduct your life, the journey you go on in your life. And in the 80s, it was very cool to, to ask each other, how's your walk? Sister, how's your walk? You know, I'm, it's, I've got a little bit of a limp, but it's okay. You know, no, 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 no. I'm talking about how's your Christian walk, right? We should bring that back. 
because it's actually really powerful. And here's why. Before Christ in the old covenant, the way that you pleased God was you had to try to obey all of these rules, all of these commandments, all of these laws. And now in the new covenant, do you know how you live a righteous life? You just fix your eyes on Jesus and you follow him by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's relational. You just, I'm just gonna follow Jesus. You know what's amazing about that? If you follow Jesus, if you just love him, I just wanna follow, I wanna be like you, Jesus. Every morning you wake up, you're not gonna be perfect, but every morning you just wake up and say, I just wanna follow, I wanna know you, Christ. I wanna see where your Holy Spirit is leading. Paul's gonna talk about the Holy Spirit. And I'm gonna do my very best to go on that walk. Do you know what's amazing? You will actually fulfill all of the requirements of the Torah. They will just naturally get fulfilled and you won't even be trying to do it. I'm gonna put another principle up and I want you to write this down. And I'm not going to move over this quickly because I know for a fact some of you don't believe this is true about you. Here's the principle. Friends, you can actually live in a way that pleases God. You can. You can please God in your life. Do you live, just we look at that phrase, do you constantly live with this sense, God's not happy with me, God's angry with me, God's gonna punish me? That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is, I get to follow Jesus. I could actually please God with my life. I can follow his Holy Spirit. But it doesn't happen through effort at law keeping or following the rules or trying, trying, trying harder. No, it's just, Jesus, I just get to wake up tomorrow and follow you. Now, is there a possibility I might stumble off the path periodically? Yes, we're all human. You know, on Google Maps, um, when you don't do what it says, right? Okay, what does it do? Yes, somebody said it. It just reroutes you. Google Maps is so gracious. It's like the gospel right there. I'm like way off. I'm like, where am I? And she's like, it's okay. I believe in Jesus. Rerouting. I'm like, thank you, Google. This is amazing. This is Christianity. Did you stumble this week? Did you hit the ground? Is your face in the dust? Did you even fall off the path? Okay, God loves you. Rerouting. Just get up. Say, Jesus, I love you. Forgive me. Can we keep going? He's like, totally. I already died for that. There's no condemnation. Just follow me. Follow me. Here's four things you can do to get the most out of Romans 8, okay? Four things I want you to do. I'd like our whole church to do this. Number one, read Romans 8 every day for the next six weeks. You don't have to read the whole chapter, but just read it as a part of your daily devotional life. Make this a part of your devotion. So when you come back next Sunday, you will already be soaking in Verses five to 11, you'll just be like, oh, I can't wait to hear. I mean, I'm gonna be out there. You better get this right, buddy, because I've been reading it all week, all right? 
Okay, read it. And if you can, read Romans 8 at least a couple times. Read the whole chapter in one sitting. You'll be blown away. It's so great. Here's the second thing. Memorize at least one verse in this. Maybe for you, you already know, I need to memorize verse one because this, this is where I am right now. You know what would be really neat is if a bunch of us memorized the last. So we're going to get to this amazing, the end of Romans is 31 to 38. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's like pure gold. What if you memorized that whole paragraph so that by the time we got there, you could just recite it with us from memory? How cool would that be? So memorize at least one verse. Here's the third thing I want you to do. I want you to ask the question, who's missing right now? Who's not here? And what I mean by that is your, your list, my five, is there someone that's supposed to be here? And you know I'm supposed to invite them. We're, hey, we, we are, we're starting this new thing in Romans 8. It's really practical. It's like really helpful. Come join me. I'd love to have you. Who's missing? And then here's the last thing, and it's kind of where I'm going to pray. Ask the question, am I in Christ? Jesus, right now, am I in Christ? Romans 8 is an invitation to the ideal Christian life. But it begins by starting a relationship with Jesus Christ which I want to give you an opportunity to pray about right now. So the worship team is going to come and I'm going to have you bow your head and um, wherever you're at, just bow your head. Before we go to the table and before we, we worship, we, we really, Lord, we want to start there just with some, some time to pray. And we've heard a lot of things about the power of the gospel and the promises of forgiveness and no condemnation and Right in the middle of it, over and over and over is this phrase about being in Christ. Lord, I know for for many in this room, there's many who, they've been in, in Christ for years, following you, Jesus, trusting you, enjoying you, worshiping you. And yet I know, Lord, there are some this morning who have come and they're realizing, I don't think I am in Christ. I think I'm outside of Christ right now. And, and yet what I'm hearing makes sense. I'm understanding all that's being taught and said. I know sin is a problem. I know what I've done to my life on my own. It's not gone well. Maybe it's time to turn to Jesus. Here's what you do. Just in the quiet of your heart, if that's you, just right now, pray this prayer with me. Just pray it along with me. Father, I believe. I believe in you. I believe what I'm hearing. I don't know why, but I believe in Jesus. I believe he's the son of the living God. I believe he died on a cross in my place. I believe he rose again on the third day. I believe there's forgiveness for my sins 
through his work on the cross, the power of his blood. I believe. And so I want to follow Jesus. I, I commit my life to Jesus. We just pray that this morning. Pray it as we worship. Pray it as we go to the table. Put all of your faith in Christ. Don't trust in anything else in this world today. Just trust in Christ. And that's for all of us. Let's trust in Jesus today. We love you, Lord. Love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.